0: Cliffcentral.com.
1: Yes, sir. That is just one of the many shows that we have on Cliffcentral.com for you. And if you haven't listened to it yet, give Catalytics uh, Jakub Voigt a, a try. The show is called Unbundled, live on Tuesday mornings, but available for podcast wherever you like it. It is time for the Burning Platform. This is your opportunity to catch up with all the things that are going on in the world. Mostly the things that affect us locally, the things we're thinking about, the things that worry us, the things that keep us up at night. And some of it is good, and some of it is bad, and some of it's very frustrating. And we're going to try and unpack some of those things today. So I've got my... um, my, my, my chief cohort here with uh, Pumi Mashiko. But I've also brought us two guests, um, one of whom is no stranger to us, Pumlani Majozi. It's always good to see you, Pumlani. How are you? I'm well sir. It's good to be back. Great Hi, to see Pumlani. you. Great to be there.
2: Are, are you being lociated there? You are in the dark.
0: Well, it is what it is. Uh, well, let's keep
3: talking.
1: So, let's Pum keep going. Pumlani is a senior fellow at African Liberty and a commentator on politics, the economy, and global affairs. You can get him on Twitter at pumlani m major and we will uh, we will obviously have lots to talk to you about you want to talk about the increase in this in the cost of living which i think is probably the thing that most south africans are thinking about right now but our other guest for this morning is alex weiss it's always good to see you alex we've uh, we, you're no stranger to anyone who's listened to your shows and i believe at the moment you are actually not in south africa you're busy doing some work mm-hmm internationally, but it's nice to have you on the show this morning. Uh, you're the content coordinator at the Freedom Advocacy Network, and you can find Alex at A-L-E-X, Alex, Vice, W-E-I-S-S-Z-A. And uh, he's coming to us live from Germany this morning. Good to have you both on. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, pleasure. All right, guys, so let's let's get cracking with the subject that I think is on most people's minds at the moment and is of concern to most people, not just in South Africa, but also in places as uh, prosperous as the United States of America. The cost of living is everybody's major concern. Um, you wake up in the morning, you think, well, what can I afford today? What am I working for? How far does my rand or my dollar stretch? And the governments of the world seem to be making this much and much, as much as difficult as they possibly can. Or is that un- unfair of me? Because Pumi and I were moaning about this earlier, and she said, I'm starting to sound very negative, but we've got to face up to these things. The reason that we are finding ourselves in an inflation situation especially if you're in the united states and of course when they sneeze the rest of us catch a cold um is that they, because they're just spending they're spending left right and center on things that they shouldn't be allowed to spend money on our money you want to go first alex <laughs> you both you're both being so politely Lani. letting each other go Pum, I know. Lani, it's on you 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 go first i know this was on your agenda go ahead me yeah <laughs>
0: Oh yes, thanks, Garrett. <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> oh, well, look, I mean, my my argument over the past, I would say, months now, um, has been that this inflation, this widespread inflation that we see in you know across the world, um, China this week reported some very, very you know uh, disturbing numbers as well. South Africa is the mm-hmm. same trend. This is not, it didn't drop from the sky. This is not the inflation from God. You know, this is man-made. This was made by people. This was made by government, officials, policy makers, bureaucrats, if you want to call them. They got us here. A -hmm. state, an environment where there is widespread inflation or increase um, in in general prices. Now, uh, let me explain how did how did that process take place? Basically, we had a situation where I believe, not that I believe, at least in my, well, in my view, I would say that there was really a mishandling in terms of how we responded to the COVID-19 pandemic, right? This thing of locking down, you know, locking down um, nations, we saw yeah. nations nations locking down severely, strongly, mm-hmm. constraining productivity, constraining demand, disrupting supply, you know, in the global economy, uh, and that itself was a mistake, right? Uh, I would say that it was really a reckless decision, decision, given the fact that, as we all know, even Bill Gates admits that you know, this pandemic was could have could have been handled better yeah. so and, now and, and, he, a, and he was a major he
1: was a major advocate for lockdowns in the beginning yes yes yeah you know? and you're quite right i mean that was the first uh, that was probably the original cause but then they piled problems on that by printing money
0: exactly and what happens then it's basic it's basic rules of economics so you i mean you you if you increase if you print money you've got to have uh, an equivalent or at least we should see an increase in what? In goods and services in the economy. Mm-hmm. That never took place, right? Instead, there was rather a suppression of that through lockdowns. Of course, inflation was was going to take place in that process. Right. It was going to take place, right? So that was another, um, that was one, so those decisions got us to where we are now at this point. And then, of course, you had, um, in the beginning of this, um, the, um, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. That, even that itself, Gareth, I' am arguing that the political decisions got us to that war as a result we saw you know a disruption in in, in oil supply we saw uh, you know an increase in, in oil prices even those even those prices they, uh, you know we saw them we see them rising because of political decision making so this inflation is man-made by public policymakers right. uh, or the government.
1: Oh, no, they're going to try and blame it on everything else. They'll say that it's Putin's price hike, is what Jen Psaki at the press office at the White House says. Biden has nothing to do with this. It's got to be Putin's price hike. And, you know, I think about, like, some of the dumb things that we – if you think back now, it seems so ridiculous. Do you remember how people were being arrested for going fishing on beaches? Do you remember how if you, um, if you went for a jog – on the promenade, before you know, Cyril said it was okay to do so and got photographed. Glad handing people. Uh, th- these were the dumb things you you had. You couldn't wear open toed shoes, and you needed to. You couldn't buy uh, roast chicken at Woolworths. This is the stupid stuff that these bureaucrats did that we can actually practically remember. The stuff that we don't remember is the is the economic costs because we still haven't tallied what those might have been. Alex, do you broadly agree with what Pumlani's is saying?
3: yeah for sure i mean i think obviously the thing is as pulani points out it's it's simple economics and i think the the problem for in South africa and everyone knows that inflation disproportionately affects the poor so of course um you know and, and a lot of my colleagues have spoken about the fact that there are over i think it's 1.4 or 2 to 1.5 million jobs that we haven't recovered Correct. from the covert lockdown so obviously one understands that you know governments tend to spend uh you know put put money into into the into the into circulations that can stimulate the economy and get people going, but then on the other hand, you know uh, we implement policies that make doing business incredibly <laughs> difficult um, and you know when we're, now we're in a situation where you've got a global uh, sort of uh, well maybe crisis maybe to to label uh, the yeah. ukraine russia conflict <laughs> um, that affects things like cooking oil yeah. um that ordinary you know, ordinary people, whether you, you, you know, cooking a, a guinea at a taxi rank or frying, frying slap chips at the corner store. I mean, that's gonna, that's gonna hurt your bottom line. Um, or and it, was it hurt- at the tech shop. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's unfortunate, um, but you know, unfortunately South Africa is not in a, in a very good position to be able to, to cope with these, these constant uh, international events obviously because of what we're doing at home, regrettably. Yeah.
2: But I think one of the things that we, we don't pay enough attention to, and, and Pumlani, you, you touched on it a little bit, is how interconnected the globe has become now, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's no longer... And the first time we really saw this kind of reverberate across the globe was with the 2008 a financial crisis in the States, right. right? So they have a financial crisis which reverberated across the world. And that's what we're seeing even now, right? As we're seeing, because all our economies are so globalized, there's no longer any kind of localized Uh, part of the economy that can absorb some of this pressure is when global events like the Ukraine or inflation in China, or, you know, all of those kinds of things have an adverse effect on the rest of us. And there's no way that our economies are able to absorb it because we don't have, we don't have the cushioning because almost everything we have now, you know, is either imported. We're so interconnected and there's this, you know, as much as people
1: so, hate to hear it, so capitalism we, gone rogue. <laughs> well, is it capitalism gone rogue or is it government interference in capitalism? And is it pure capitalism or is it crony corporatism? Because they are different things. I mean, truly, the free market is still the best system for being able to uh, to, to give people the option to choose to be a part of something and not be a part of something, to, to hedge their bets, to bet for or against things. But it almost feels like... Um, <laughs> And especially if you look at things like the Bitcoin price, which I see, is it, it. this hurts me to even say it, $27,479 this morning. We were talking about like $60,000 not so long ago. We never quite reached it, but this is bad. It means mm-hmm. that we're running out of options to get away from government incompetence, the like of which Pumlani was describing earlier. So you can blame people and you can blame capitalism, but this is bad policy. But it's, it's bad policy.
2: But it's it's more than just that, you know, you, you're talking about crony
1: um, <laughs> corporatism. <laughs>
2: yeah. Corporatism, crony co- corporatism. But that's exactly what I'm saying is that mm. the, the crony corporatism is a global effect, right? Because we've got multinationals that are now everywhere in the world. And there is no way that well, local economies <clears throat> are able to absorb. because that's we- that's actually what it is is that free market has been bastardized by the fact that we have these super conglomerates that
1: operate all over the world but the biggest and baddest players here are still government i mean so china's decided to basically shut shanghai down there are thousands and thousands of ships we spoke about this last week on the burning platform that are anchored off of the 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 chinese uh, mainland they are waiting to pick things up to take things away I was talking to someone here in South Africa just last week about the supply chain crisis that we have. And we cannot get containers at the moment. If you are in the business of importing and exporting goods and you're trying to sell stuff or buy stuff, it is well nigh impossible right now to get supplies in or out of the country, not to mention that the floods in Durban made that even harder. And we know that infrastructure has been really badly hit by that in the end. It is up to governments to open or close ports to make sure that infrastructure works or not. This is not something that corporates can take over in any capitalist's no. biggest wildest dream can capitalists uh, can can companies take this over unfortunately yeah. the worst the worst offenders in this case are governments
0: you know um, the market the businesses operating in the market they react. Government policies mm-hmm. right uh, if governments decide to shut down um, using their um, their powers to shut down the economy, um, that will have um, the market will, will react to that so it's they don't just do things um, just overnight it's right. a reaction to government's um, uh, policies or the environment created by you know by government. Now, mm-hmm. let me say this something troubles me here. Uh, And that is, I heard the president, I think it was in one one of his recent speeches addressing the nation saying that basically he was saying, he was citing China and telling uh, uh, people that, you know, there are cases rising in China, China is locking down. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if we as citizens of South Africa don't vaccinate at a faster rate, we could experience the same thing. That is what he suggests. Suggested so, so in his speech, and that to me troubled me, Garrett, because it means that we are going to do. If the cases would go up, don't be surprised if these um, people they choose to implement these um, the lockdowns again, because we do. Even even the fact that China is implementing lockdowns yeah. at this very shocking level, to me, at this two years into the pandemic, when we know that the lockdowns they have greater damage to society yet yep, they are still absolutely. going ahead
1: with them absolutely that's
0: that's that
1: troubling so let's just move to what you brought up here that the president Cyril Ramaphosa he spoke at the mining in Darba and I don't know whether any of you watched the speech um again he talks about how government's trying to make it easier for us to attract foreign investment in mining actually again I sound like a broken drum here but just get out of the way, and you will help stimulate the mining industry. I mean, I don't know why government don't understand this. The less they have to do with mining, the better mining does. Am I wrong? Does anyone want to argue with that, or can we just move on?
3: <laughs> no, yeah, okay. no I'll, I'll go for that. I think there's, there's something really slimy I'm, and I, I don't like to uh, describe a president like that, but there's something sinister about the way Ramaphosa is able to step in front of a crowd of very important um, sort of business people and, and industry specialists, and and say all this fluff when behind closed doors, or actually with ANC, what you, what you see, what you see, is opening, what you get, they actually yeah. often tell you what what they're going to do. Um, it's a It's a cognitive dissonance on on another level um and it's it just it just doesn't ring true there's it's very hollow promises um yeah. you know that if we track uh the times that you know the Rampus force has promised to create jobs and uh, not not that it's the role of the government to create jobs but you know enable that environment but even yeah. so um it's it's just it's it's false it's vanity um and the thing is we know that what needs to be done to to uh, make mining more more viable in south africa to mm-hmm. to create an environment where you know commodities is a very important aspect of, of our economy it's huge um and it's part of the reason why there was actually something positive mm-hmm. to say in the budget speech this year it was because of the commodities boom so yeah it's difficult to you, use, you, know, you know
2: except for the fact that i mean i don't think commodities is as big as we we make it out to be in our heads i mean it only accounts for about nine percent of our gdp right only 9% of our gdp is commodities and mining but i think you know we we make this assumption and i don't know why that government or our government in particular operates in this vacuum that business or business leaders don't have a voice in the room or a seat at the table when policies are being drafted, when, when, when ideas are being fl- flouted mm-hmm. for the rest of us, that it's, it is without the consultation of private mm-hmm. sector. And I think just recently we've come to learn exactly how big of a role private sector actually plays. After the announce, after all of the things that we have now learned about Bain and their consultancy and how involved they have been in the way that people were deployed within the government, different people in different areas of soes that is what that 's what private sector is able to do is they actually have such a huge voice in the room that by the time Cyril Ramaphosa stands up in front of a crowd to say, "This is what we're going to do, this is how it 's going to roll out." It's because private sector has said, this is what we need to see the government doing in order for us to be able to participate or help you out as the government. It's, not, it's, it's just simply not true to say that government is in the way. They are in co with each other.
1: I think that's fair. I mean, Pumlani, you want to add anything to the Mining in Daba speech? Did you watch it?
0: Um oh, not really. I know what's going on, so I know this stuff. <laughs> and I know what I'm going to say as well. Um, mm. but I've been reading follow just reading about it. You see, my my um um I think I Pumi, Pumi has a point. It's a good point what you are saying, Pumi. Mm. Uh but there's something troubling with our president and that is depending on the on the type of his audience, he says something different. Right. If he's in the room with, for mm-hmm. example, the Tripartite Alliance, alliance, the Communist Parties, mm. uh, the uh mm-hmm. all affiliates of the NC, he will say something different, right? right? And then if he goes into a mining in Daba or this investment conference that took place here, here in Centine, uh not long time ago, he says something different. You know, uh, you look at his, um, in fact, I did like his uh, State of the Nation address uh, this year where he was saying that. You know, business needs needs to be at the forefront uh, of the economy. I, I mean, I like that. And then the following the following week in his newsletter, he says, "Well, you know, I mean, we need the state led economy and so on and so on." So this is a president who has two faces. Yeah. Right. Now, okay, that's fine. We understand that he has two faces, given the nature perhaps of the ANC. But now let's look at. Uh, we should try and look at what is going on in terms of policy. I think for me, what is currently currently being implemented, I think is very important as well and you can see that really we are not making the strides we should be making right uh, when it comes to the necessary reforms that we need as a country. That in itself is a problem. but rhetoric in some instances has been good, uh, but the actual implement- implementation of that good rhetoric or
1: rhetoric. It hasn't really Don't you you guys also just get the feeling, though, that Cyril's really just paying lip service to all the different people? He's paying lip service to his own party. He's paying lip service to business. I don't feel like his heart's really in it because he doesn't know what the cost of living is. He hasn't known for the longest time what it costs to live. He doesn't know about traffic. He doesn't know about the price of bread. He doesn't know about what it's like to worry about hospital fees, um, to get sick. You know, we we pay for all of that for him. And even if we didn't, he's a billionaire. He doesn't know what that stuff means to ordinary South Africans. And I hate to sound like somebody who's constantly criticizing from the sidelines. I just don't get the feeling that Cyril's really got an immersive experience of what South Africa is. I think he tours around he slaps people on the back and smiles and laughs. And you can see this, whether it's at ANC conferences or anywhere else. But the reality is the moment he, re- he meets real people, they boo him like in Rustenburg just the other day. They boo him. And then he's like, he's shocked. He's always shocked, but he's shocked and horrified that the people would be like, why would you be cross with me? I'm the lovely Cyril Ramaphosa. I'm the guy who was meant to take over after Mandela, but Tabumbeki Mbeki uh, got, got in before me. That's what he thinks in his head. He's like, well, I'm uh, I'm very I'm I'm, I'm essential to the, the the success and the happiness of the average South African. I don't know whether that's true anymore. I don't think that that he has any political capital or goodwill left, frankly. And the only people who still support him are people like Adrian Basson at News Twenty Four. I don't know who else does.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, you see, the way I see this is is that uh, the, the president uh, lost on the opportunity, and and I've used the word opportunity since he came into office. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that when he came in, he had an opportunity to be one of the most, you know, influential, um, a person who changes our history, given the, what we went through in the previous administration. So he had that opportunity. Uh, but I think at this point, my view is that he has lost that. I always say that you should make, unpo- if you're a president, make unpopular decisions <laughs> while he's still still in the office. right? right. Well, that's where your popularity, you don't know, look at the, as presidents, uh, you know, run the countries, initially when they first come in, they tend to be popular, but as time goes by over the years, um, they become less popular, right? So rather do the most things that, um, you know, are unpopular, in the beginning, so that it gives you time to bounce back uh before you run for your so you make a case for your second term, so I think the president has 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 lost that opportunity um I don't think I would be as as tough on him as you as you are gareth um of course, I am tough on him, but I don't think to the to the point where you are in the end of saying he really doesn't have i i think he does have a sense of what's going on, yeah. but he has a witness. He's a weak leader, and I've spoken to people. I've spoken before to someone who once worked with him. He when he was a unionist, yeah. Back in the eighties, by nature, this person doesn't have, you know, a strong stance uh, on his on, on his views. So I think he has lost an opportunity. That, that's just my view.
1: Okay. Anybody else want to step in and maybe defend the man? I know how you feel about him, Pumps. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> Yeah
3: I I think I think maybe Pumlani is even being a bit generous and um, I think yeah I think he he is a a, a died in the world socialist and I think for me the the the, the most astounding sort of ad, admission is that he said he's even said he's that he's a, the president of the ANC before the the president of the country and I think that's kind of all you need to know and you know we're in an elective conference year and um I'm sure that's that's where his priorities lie this year. And um yeah, I think it's it's pretty plain plain to see. And yeah, I think I think the hype of Ramaphoria was more of desperation um than anything else. But um yeah, we we can see how how that's turned out. And I think one thing just to add on 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 sort of the, the ANC and, and understanding what's going on is I've had colleagues who, who used to um, you know, who used to brief um members of the ANC and they they very much under, understand what's going on. It's just it's at odds with their agenda. Um, so, for example, when, when Jacob Zuma was in the presidency, ESCOM was was a was an issue, in, you know, he understood that you needed electricity in order to keep the machine going. Right. Um, and, and so that, that sort of obviously we know why there was a vested interest in, in coal and all that sort of stuff uh, mm. from from the Zoom administration. But at least there was an understanding of what, what needed to be done. Um, whereas I think now we've just reached a point where, you know, the ANC is in such a desperate state that it kind of takes all of the attention. So it's as much as they can do to keep the gravy train going is is what's what's happening at the moment. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like We, we bemoan the Zuma administration, but in order to steal, they understood that they had to keep certain elements running. I mean, Cyril's, Cyril's government doesn't even seem to get get that, that part right. So in some ways, at least you knew what you were dealing with with the Zuma administration. All right, let's... let's...
2: I think that's based on a very dangerous premise. The, and the premise is that they don't know what they're doing. I think that premise is dangerous because... I am quite convinced that he knows exactly what it is that he's doing. It simply is not what you want him to be doing, hmm. nor is it for the better of <laughs> the betterment of the country. However,
1: yeah.
2: probably, depending on what it is that his agenda is, which we don't have access to, that information. Everything is working exactly the way that he wants it to be working. Today, with hindsight, we can look back and say at the Zuma years that we understand Zuma's agenda was to loot. And therefore, these decisions, with hindsight, again, because we started out with the premise that was incorrect. And even now, the premise is incorrect. So to say that maybe Cyril Ramaphosa doesn't know what's going on and that's why he's shocked, he knows full well. He okay. knows full well, so then it's, but it serves his agenda. Then it's, it serves it's, it's, his agenda. It's, it's what purposeful. is It's
1: purposeful. Then it's then it's destructive, but but it's on purpose. It's not by mistake.
2: And in fact, yeah, we get, we can then look back and because he also is very protected for whatever reason. This is a president that is treated with kid gloves across the
1: board. But when especially, but especially by the media. it comes yeah. to
2: yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, it's a, it. It actually serves him for people to say, "Oh, you know, Cyril is actually being hard done by, by mm-hmm. factions within the party. Right. Cyril is being misled by the, you know his cabinet isn't. You know, none of it is ever Cyril's problem. Mm-mm. None of it is ever Cyril's fault. Cyril's doing or Cyril's fault. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the dangerous premise is thinking that Cyril cares. I don't think Cyril cares. It's not that he doesn't know. He just doesn't.
1: That's why you were smiling while I was talking about how he doesn't know the price of bread, right? (laughs) Okay, so guys, let's turn to some specifics here because I know you both have things that you really want to unpack this morning and we've got to touch on some different areas. I know, Alex, you wrote about the education and skills mismatch in South Africa. What what people are learning what they are being taught at high schools, universities, and wherever else they can get an education, frankly, and what kinds of skills South Africa really needs. Now, this is something close to my heart, and I read your article, which you can find, by the way, if you uh, want to read it on The Daily Friend, and it's called the hard truth about South, African edu- South Africa's education crisis. Just lay it out for us in, in, in general, and people can always go and read the article, but I think that you make some really, really good points in here about what kinds of skills we actually need and whether or not we're churning out people with those skills at the moment.
3: Mm. So like like Pumi mentioned, like, um, you know, mining doesn't play as big a role as it used to in, mm-hmm. in our economy. You know, we've, over the last sort of 20 years, uh, we've shifted from a from a more industry based to a more information um and sort of services based economy but our our sort of output our education is not preparing our workforce to to get into those skills so i mean obviously we, we you know when you look at i think the first the first thing i 've started within my arguments is just to say that you know if Funding was an issue that would obviously be an, an instant red flag, you know. Um, and, and, but- and let's be clear, of-
1: funding is not an issue. You lay this out very clearly in, a, in a, a nice chart, which I'll actually put up on the screen because I think it might help a bunch of people. And this is from the World Bank, so it's not as if you've gone and taken this from some strange little right-wing uh, NGO and and decided to thrust this in people's face. I mean, this is interesting because I think for many of us, we tend to think that oh well, the problem is funding, and government will often tell you that the biggest problem that we have is funding. We just need to spend more money. South Africa proportionally spends more money than a lot of countries in this graph, which might interest people. So Australia, France, Israel, Japan, Netherlands, Russia, Spain, the UK, and then the world in, in, in obviously in aggregate. We spend 19.5% of our proportion of public spending, by far the largest percentage across all of those countries. The next closest we can get is Israel. And <laughs> that to me doesn't speak of a funding problem. Am I right? Yeah,
3: exactly. So, I mean, proportionally, I mean, relatively, that amounts to, I think, for the latest budget speech about 400, roughly 420 billion Rand, mm-hmm. um, of which 70, 70 to 75% goes to salaries and wages. And I think for me, you know, having. I, I'm very much in <laughs> favor of 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 teachers getting getting remunerated. Um, unfortunately, we are in a situation where we've got very uh, militant trade unions, um, very very low accountability. F- you know, we've got high absenteeism rates of teachers. Um, yeah. they're probably not really supported. So, I definitely wouldn't lay the blame uh, at the teachers. Um, but one wh- one of the interesting things that that, that you saw and, and this uh, a colleague of mine, Hebran van Heeren, um. Mm-hmm. He points out that just in the Eastern Cape, there's been a proliferation of parents opting to go to private or um, non-government schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think since since the uh, dawn of democracy, it's increased by something like seven hundred percent in the Eastern Cape. And right. um, so parents are looking elsewhere. Um, but I think one of the, the the fascinating things is when you just look at ordinary facilities, um, you know, eighty percent of of schools don't have libraries um a simple place where kids can go after school to do their homework um and, and that sort of stuff um, and then yeah i think you know w- what the the major downfall is you know i don't know Gareth, I, I do a lot of marketing stuff and you know if you look at something like how email marketing works mm-hmm. for example um you know you have a sample of people that you send emails to yeah. Um, you know, usually about 20 to 25% click on it, yeah. um, open it, you know, 5% click it and, you know, maybe like 0.5% will unsubscribe. So, but in, so relatively in South Africa, if you think about it in that way, we start, we start with a cohort of, you know, one one point well, one million. Well, let's just students. just yep. before
1: you even move on to this point, because I put up this graph briefly, and it's it's worth de- describing to the listening audience who are not watching it on screen. So what they've done here is this is from the Department of Basic Education. They've shown public schools that do not have facilities. So, for example, a library, which you think every school in South Africa should have, um, because if they don't have the internet, for example, and we'll get to that in a second, how else are people going to access any information? So 69.6% of South African public schools do not have a library. 80% of South African schools do not have a laboratory. 58% of South African schools do not have computer facilities, and I'd imagine that includes the internet generally. And 43% do not have any sports facilities. Now, That would be one of the reasons that parents in the Eastern Cape, for example, don't want to send their kids to public schools because they don't have any of those things. And without those things, there's a limit to how much you can teach people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think basically what what that means is that we're not equipping – how how can we expect kids to learn in such environments? I mean, we did a show – um, one one of our podcasts this week, and we, we did a heavy focus on, on education. Mm-hmm. And just the blurb of the podcast was, um, you know, on this on this episode we discuss um, the, uh, the looting of a school in where uh, feeding scheme f- uh, food was stolen, and in the Eastern Cape, uh, a school has resorted to teaching under trees. Now this is at our big age in 2022, um, so really we cannot really expect um, any. Value what the, the outcomes that we do get are mm-hmm. uh, almost should be should be commended in in one sense, but it does lead to a stage where you know you get to to metric and fifty percent of your your cohorts right isn't there anymore. Well, so here, here's, are, here's are the story.
1: The and I interrupted you, but let's look at the the class of 2010, for example. Um, so in 2010, these people all began grade one together. Some 1.116 million young people started grade one together in twenty ten. By the time we get to twenty twenty one and they're in Matric, the the number of them who actually pass in twenty twenty one is five hundred and thirty seven six hundred and eighty seven. Now of that group, the number who get a bachelor's pass are only again half. Of two hundred and fifty six thousand and thirty one people who get a pass in order to study a bachelor's degree in twenty twenty one. That's two hundred and fifty six thousand people out of 1.116 million that's crazy for the amount that we're investing in each of those kids because it is this is the taxpayers and the government and the people of south africa paying for this and if that's the return you're getting that is not a very good return
2: look i think i i think that there are a lot of different factors that come into play When when we talk about particularly the numbers of people who start and people who finish off school, and was it two weeks ago? I think two weeks ago we we had a little conversation about education, and I said to you guys that I think that unfortunately it got fucked up from the onset, right? And every single one of our education ministers, from Kada Asmal to Ejimutsaka today. Is to blame for the shit show that we are in when it comes to education, starting from things like the age at which we are allowing kids to start school. Right? We in South Africa, in particular, but sub Saharan Africa as a whole, have the latest age starts to school and there's a very good reason why that is problematic right so most countries france having the youngest they started about four years old but most countries started about six and compulsory schooling is up till the age of 16. that is because most families cannot afford to have kids beyond the age of 16 in full-time schooling we start at seven to 18 when we are lucky, so kids drop out because the, the the family can't afford it. They need these kids to be out working or mm-hmm. trying to earn a living, or, or even worse, doing chores in the family. This is these are the problems that we yeah. deal with when we talk about school dropouts in this country. You know, sub-Saharan Africa. You, in one of the last graphs, you looked at the fact that we have such a low pass rate with maths and science, Sub-Saharan Africa is the only place in the whole world where children are expected to learn maths and science in a foreign language. Everywhere else, they learn maths and science in their mother tongue. And here, of course, we're going to have head marks because we are not we're allowing kids to deal with concepts and language as a barrier to learning. You know, and I think like looking at things like there there are many things that are wrong with our education system and and money is not the answer yeah so how, many how can money we not, have, not the
1: answer. how can we not have had in in 27 years um a minister or at least a department that didn't acknowledge these basic things which you've just laid out now Pumi? this is outrageous that this stuff hasn't been touched on and if it has been touched on and it's been pushed to the bottom of the policy pile that is Again, something which we should hold people to account for. How come politicians are the only ones who get away with making terrible decisions and having horrible, ruinous consequences, except for them? They just move on. They just get redeployed or they resign quietly or they, they get thrown out in the next cabinet reshuffle. It seems to be that those are the people who are never held to account. So, Pumlani, anything you want to add on education before we move on?
0: Yeah, here is a tweet I tweeted last month. It was the uh, 30th, April, um, where I said that only about 40% of South Africa's... Um, in, in fact, I was saying that Mike Schusler, the economist, mm-hmm. he said that only about 40% of our kids in South Africa complete school within 13 years of starting. right? In developed countries, it is often more than 90%. Um, and he says that most most emerging market peers have 60% plus school completion rates, right? Um, And often I've spoken about uh, the importance of competitiveness, that we should not only, that our competitiveness, it's not not only the economy that needs to be competitive in the world, our economy. It it also has to do education, need to have a competitive education. Um, because really it's a global, it's a global competitive world. And with, I totally agree with Pumi and Alex that it's not about the money. Um, mm-hmm. it's about the structural reforms that need to take place. Um, and I'm one of those people who have uh, often said that uh, South Africa is not a poor country. We are not a poor country. It's, this is a middle, we are rent as middle income states, at least for now. <laughs> right. Although we are declining, of course, but for now, we are still a middle income state. So the fact that we have 70 percent of public schools not having a library, that to me is a shame. And the fact, and if you have spoken now, um, Gareth, that these people, politicians, they get away with anything. But guys, we need to remember one thing. Yeah, this is a democracy. Mm-hmm. Right. And as economist Thomas Sowell once said, um, you know, in a democracy, uh, the voter has power. And if you don't punish these politicians, Garrett, then they will keep on doing the Taking things that are damaging yeah. to our society.
2: The truth of the matter is, we need new ideas. You know, I think one of the things that we ideas saying. Are those ideas? New ideas won't come from the NC. They're not going to come from. And, and this is what I'm always talking about on this show to say, we need all of us, our best minds. to to be in the forefront. We have relegated the power to politicians and we have allowed their non-thinking to be the thing that determines our future and the future of our kids. You know, we, we have the opportunity right now to leapfrog old systems so you know it's 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 a crying shame that schools don't have libraries as it is today but we have the opportunity to leapfrog that because we now live in a digital age should we still be thinking about building brick and mortar um libraries Mm. or should we be thinking about how is it that we're going to give kids access to the information superhighway right and allow them to have access to books and material, study material from all over the world at their fingertips, right? That's, that's, those are the things that we should be thinking about. Like, you know, should we still be thinking about building a library? We were talking earlier in the past hour, we were talking about a doctor who uses robotics to uh, operate on patients. This is what kind of the future skills that we need to be working on. That's what we need to be doing now.
1: All right, we've got, just a few minutes left and i want to hear from um, all three of you about what you think about what's going on in the world at the moment we we kind of gloss over the ukraine russia situation because you know it, it's kind of led by whatever tragic situation the media can show us as as a as a an emotive visual on tv but really there's a there's a lot going on here there's a lot going on in china we mentioned earlier this this supply crisis which the whole world is suffering from and we've also touched on america But there are other things going on, too, which are probably worthy of some discussion. I mean, Alex, you're in Germany, uh, Europe at the moment. Uh, What are the preoccupations there besides Russia and the Ukraine? And and what kind of political moves that we haven't discussed yet on the show? Things like the French election, which just happened and which was a very close run thing for Emmanuel Macron. Remember, the French do their election slightly differently to the rest of us. They have different stages through which the, 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 the main competitors have to pass in order to become uh, president. Uh, this uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who used to be characterized as a very far-right extremist, has come into the center a little bit more. She's still right of, of people like Macron, but she did very, very well in these elections. And increasingly, we're seeing countries that have been, for the longest time, uh, left-wing dominated, like France, we're seeing them in Europe starting because largely of immigration concerns, because of uh, problems with with terrorism and all kinds of other things. We see these countries moving ever more to the right. Is this something we should be worried about? In Hungary, we know Orbán is there. In Austria, they've had some close-run elections. And even in Germany, with Spain. Spain, even Germany with their coalition governments, which try to accommodate as much of the center and to and to keep out as much of the extremist left and right as possible. We're seeing a move, aren't we?
3: Yeah, I mean, Gareth, what's quite interesting from 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 seeing what's happening, uh, obviously, Germany plays plays quite an important role in in the EU. Mm. Um and obviously, one of one of the big issues is the their reliance on the role, <laughs> the role um, in the EU. <laughs> and you know, their their reliance on on Russian gas is very very well documented. Right. Um, and and so, what, what's what's quite interesting. I mean, for, just aside from from the the political implications, and you know, they 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 playing their role mm. is uh, one one thing. I've they've just announced here that they will. Um, because we spoke a bit about inflation and, and the like earlier is that because of, because of what's happening in Ukraine, uh, the, and inflation, the German government will give citizens 300, I think it's 300 euros, um, for I think three months to cushion the, the expense of rising energy, energy rates. So obviously that, that helps buffer their, their own, um, reliance on, on, on Russian, um, well, oil and yes. gas. But I mean that's the ability of, of, a, of a powerful economy they can actually look after their their citizens and I think you know that gives a a lot of, uh, a lot of credence to to their, to their politicians to you know when it comes to the ballot boxes yeah um, and and so you know when you when you have these, these flourishing free market economies and I think people in who live in these situations where their governments work for them they uh, they endorse them mm-hmm. um, unlike, unlike back. Back home, where we where we reward um, incompetence, it seems.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Poms, I know there are a lot of. In- you,
2: you know, Gareth, you're, you're talking about the fact that we see globally a shift to the right. Mm-hmm. Right, we see more and more uh, parties that are right leaning come to the fore. We were speaking about America earlier, and how much uh, the GOP there and and some of what we consider backward ideals seem to be coming back into the fold. I kind of feel like one of the things that we haven't done in politics as a whole is reimagine what politics looks like and should look like and what it answers to. You know, in marketing, which is uh, my area of expertise, we had to shift away from looking at audiences or customers in demographics Mm -hmm. you know we used to use demographics male female black white age all of that kind of stuff and we've started working more with what we call psychographics so the four of us even though we are democratic graphically very different to each other, we may have the same psychographics, we have the same interest in stuff, we want the same things, we have the same motivations and all of that kind of stuff. Yes. Similarly, politics is in that space where it no longer serves us to look at things in left or right. Because quite honestly, when you think about people who are far left, they start becoming right wingers, And people who are far right, you know, it's it's like a curvature, they begin yeah. to meet the somewhere
1: shoe. Absolutely.
2: We need to be looking at people's needs and what people need and what people require and what and the feedback, what politicians are very bad at doing is taking feedback, the feedback of what people say they want, the feedback of what people say they need and responding to.
1: I hear you. But when I when I hear the the word reimagine, I hear that coming from like these. Doe-eyed politicians and and utopianists who who think that they can they can redefine things that have already been defined. I mean, we know that one of the definitions of right wing is a tendency towards conservatism uh, conservatism rather towards traditional ideals, towards authoritarianism, very often uh, towards the the, uh, the 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 religious. Uh, impulse more than anything else but we know that on the left it's it's towards the kind of social libertinism that we that we're seeing in in places like america for example and and obviously these definitions aren't going to change the definitions stay more or less the same yeah. and i agree with you that maybe it's not the best prism through which to view the world but someone like bolsonaro as compared to someone like like lula in brazil is a clear left to right jump and i think It represents to some people the kind of jump that they're making because – and you've said it many times, Pumi – the left has run out of ideas and the right is is implementing ideas from from many years ago as if they're new. Um, And really all that's that's happening is it's this wheel. It just the wheel turns. And as things go to the left, they will eventually rebalance on the right and so forth. And, And it's just constantly in flux. Do you guys agree with that? I mean that's stuff I learned in political science in first year.
2: No.
0: well I think for me it's um it, it tends to be people they are redefining these terms and and that's what that's what i've observed as, I've observed as well uh, i think it's easy to just brand people now as 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 right wing even when they are saying sensible stuff mm. and right wing now is usually associated with ex- extremist, racist kind of attitude, right? Um, and and that concerns me because I, when it comes to whenever I speak about left and right wing, I'm I'm talking about in the how the, those terms uh, originated in the French Assembly, where those who believed, you know, back in them, in um, this is um, the, the revolution. Uh, revolution times when those who believed in big government sat on the left in the french assembly those who believed in smaller government yeah well,
1: um, also the, 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 the monarchists yes, the, the monarchists were right wing and and the and, yeah. the, and the, the jacobins were left wing so these are the, these are still the definitions we use
0: so i um, uh, but i mean they tend to be now sort of be associated with someone who is extremist, racist, kind of, uh, especially when I'm talking about right wing, and I've been called a right winger many
1: times. Mm. Why?
0: Because I'm saying that should privatize SOEs in
1: South Africa. No, No. because you're a terrible racist, don't lie.
0: You see, I mean, (laughs) so I mean, I I spoke about the family breakdown, that to to build a country, you need to have... Children growing up both with their fathers and mothers,
1: no, and you, those are from of prosperity. You are prosperity. a, you're a, you're, a, you're a reactionary when you say things like that. If it if it suits the other side to call you that, just like calling someone a radical, because they believe in uh, what Pumi and I were talking about earlier—the right of people to. To, to choose uh, what to do with their own bodies, who to sleep with, those kinds of things. You called it a radical. Yeah, you know?
2: labels labels make it easy to dismiss people. Yes. Then, then you don't have to engage with the concepts that mm-hmm. they're putting in front of you. Right. Then you can just label them and dismiss them for whatever. That's,
0: point. that's my point. Right wing, left wing, you know, that's it. You don't even hear what they're saying. Rather, look at Pumi is saying, you look at the fundamental issues. What are the problems and how do you address them? Is this really an issue or not? And then we debate that, then to just dismiss the person as a right winger or, or, or left-wing. And that that trend is the main thing that troubles me right now. Where politics goes, you know, it's people's decisions, how in democracies, yeah. how politics, in which direction they take. But the moment we really attack and marginalize and suppress those who raise the fundamental issues and dismiss them, yes. it's just... Right dream mm-hmm. or left wing, without engaging the issues to me I think that's even Stupid. more damaging
1: correct uh, alex any any last words from you on this international stuff and and then we'll give Pumlani his uh, his last chance and then we'll wrap it up
3: yeah I, I think you know labels labels are labels um but I think you know uh, in, internationally what 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 you realize in 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 these for lack of a better term, very first world countries. Um, and, and southern Germany, where I am, is, is, is levels it's ahead of About as um,
1: first world as you get. It's,
3: it's frightening almost. <laughs> um, it is really just that you, they get the basics right. Yeah. Um, the, the police are very professional. Um, the, the, the service delivery is, is phenomenal. Um, and the government works for the people. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, we don't have a case, um, you know, there's there's not an instance here where, you know, property rights are under threat, where there's rolling blackouts every day. Mm. Um, you know, it really is just the bare stuff. And I think, you know, if, if, if we can at least just really, I think in 2024, you um, know, implement some change. I hate to, to, I hate to paraphrase,
1: to right. I hate to paraphrase you, but are you saying, and you can correct me if I misunderstood here, but are you saying that when things work, when people can rely on their government to do the things that governments are there for, they worry less about ideology
3: well I, well, I, th- I think so I mean the problem then is that they have more time to worry about uh, fringe things like you kind of you see in the states your third uh, the ivy League uh, mm-hmm. well I, I, to be honest here a massive uh, seems to dominate the, the the debate is climate change and yeah. you know uh, all that sort of stuff so I think that the the, the The sort of debate just shifts but you're not talking about do we have kids passing matric with more than 30 Mm percent? you know what i mean it's just it's the next stage of of um yeah by the way that's
1: a really good point and i'd like all the climate change people to realize that the best way to get people to care about climate change is to make them rich and prosperous and to, to give them all their basic needs then they'll start worrying about chopping down trees carbon emissions uh, you know, um, electric yeah, especially cars, in especially in Africa. We've got we've got other things that kind of come before that in terms of what we're concerned about. Uh, Pumi, anything yeah, else? Yeah. Anything else from you, Pums? Before we wrap it up, any other issues that you want to quickly throw onto the table?
2: You must always let the guests go first. Let Lani, finish
1: <laughs> Lani, from
0: Yeah, I was about to say that in Africa, we are not. That is not the greatest concern. Right. I think that, that we have we have greater concerns from political instabilities to high rates of poverty, lack of infrastructure and so on. I think that's where our focus should be. Now, the, the Western countries, the very rich countries led by Joe Biden, they are coming here basically pressuring us to make critical decisions, even on our energy sources, mm-hmm. you know, without, you know, thinking about what they economic implications will be for us. So we are in that That transition needs to be handled quite, quite well. Um, and, and I must say that um, there's much work to be done. I, w- I would say that.
1: Yeah, enough. absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more on that front. There's lots to be done. I think everybody knows there's lots to be done. And we've got the people who are desperate for employment who want to do those things. So really just bridging that gap would be the best possible solution to so many of our problems. Final word, then, to Pumi Mashiko.
2: You know, it's wonderful that uh, Alex is talking to us from Germany. And and Germany is one of the best examples that we can look to. Because the people in Germany did not relegate thinking to just the government. You know, they are very involved in, in everything from their governance to the education of their children. In, in Germany, um, interestingly, education is regionalized. Right, So each region decides what their children need to to learn because education, like staple foods, have to be homegrown. You have to answer to the solutions of the people in the places that they are at. One of the things that we can absolutely learn again from Germany is Germany, if you think about it, in 1945, that country was flattened. That country was flattened. And literally in a generation and a half, they have become one of the strongest economies in the world. And it's because the people didn't just sit back and wait for somebody else to do the thinking for them. They didn't wait for somebody else to make the decisions on their behalf. So we have to be that too. We as South Africans, each and every single one of us cannot be sitting back and allowing (laughs) David Mabusa <laughs> to be the people that make decisions for us you know yeah. we, we and we have to take it thing, into our own hands just to add
0: uh Garrett, before i uh, we, we go one one conversation we should have one day is around the issue of culture right uh, the, the the differences in culture around the world and how that influences prosperity and our attitudes to governments because you can see people of Germany, they have that, kind, they have a different culture than ours. Mm-hmm. People of Scandinavian well, countries, different culture, North America, the Asian countries, and how that shapes how we react to governments and how we organize our societies. I think culture is one conversation we should have one day.
1: I like it. I think we're going to end it on that note. Gentlemen and Pumi, thank you very, very much for your time today. And I hope that we'll have uh, more discussions with all of you in the future. We'll be back with The Burning Platform next week, same time, same place, with more guests, more interesting things to unpack, and potentially some controversies along the way. You know how it goes. But in the meantime, uh, Alex... Um, and uh, Pumlani and Pumi, thank you very much. And most especially, thank you to uh, you for joining us this morning. And if you listen to us live and you participate, like and subscribe on the YouTube channel. Otherwise, you can always, which most people do, listen to the podcast and make sure you give us a nice high rating on there so that the rest of the people who haven't discovered it yet can find out. Do all of that, and we will love you in return, I promise. We'll be back tomorrow, 6 a.m. Cheers, everybody.
2: Bye-bye.